Hell yeah. Well, um, holy shit, Screenagers. This is exciting as hell. Uh, this is a very, very cool thing that we're doing today on the Canon. Uh, for only the second time and the first time with like actual mics and stuff, we're doing an in-person recording of the Canon. I have two of my really good friends uh, here to talk uh, with us about Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Army Brushen, Sam Gilberg, aka New Angels, uh, right? That's New Angel. New Angel. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pit it I'm, again. So, I'm so sorry. Pit it again. AKA, AKA uh, New Angel Productions. There we go. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for doing this with me. I don't know who to look at. <laughs> Eye contact is a weird thing. Yeah. It's a pleasure. A pleasure yeah. to be here. Yeah. Something uh, we've followed for a while and something that we're we're happy to be a part of finally. Yeah. So that's cool. So I think before we get into the movie itself, um, you know, I'm bringing you guys in. I wanted to bring you guys in on the show for a while because of your experiences as you guys are writers, producers, directors. So like you guys know movies, I think in a way that a lot of other people who I've had on the show, like don't, you know, they just don't have the experience. So I think if each of you could maybe just like give us a quick background of like your experience, you know, with filmmaking, um, I think that'll just like color our conversation in a way that will like help the viewer or the listener rather sort of understand, you know, why you guys are, are people who we should be listening to about like why certain movies are important. So Sam, why don't, why don't you kick us off on that front? Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess a bit of background. Um, uh, well, both of us are from New York, um, grew up making little films, little short films together and on our own, just kind of took to it really young. Um, both studied film in college. I studied film uh, at Wesleyan. Uh, then we both drove out to Los Angeles after college uh, with the goal of making movies, short films, music videos. Um, and we founded our company, New Angel Productions, um, where we, which was our outfit and it continues to be our outfit for all of our production. Um, we made a few short films some music videos, uh, had some success with a, a short film that came out a couple of years ago called Ashore, which did a, a oh, yeah. uh, had a really good uh, festival circuit uh, run. And, um, and as we've kind of been working on this project together, this, um, our baby, New Angel, we've both had a lot of really awesome experiences working in Hollywood. I myself worked, uh, well, we started up, started in the mailroom and then, um, Worked for a couple directors on a couple indie films, and then um, got a break working on Westworld for about three and a half years for a couple seasons of that show, and then um, worked as a, an associate producer on a, a Warner Brothers film called Reminiscence, uh, which came out, uh, which starred Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson, came out uh, about a year and a half ago, um, which was a, a truly like exhilarating experience. So um, my my experience has been a lot of uh, producing and. Mm. Um, Meanwhile, writing and directing with my partner, Armand. Um, Hell yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing rundown. Like <laughs> listening go. to you talk through the, the last, last 10 years is, is pretty fun. Because yeah. in the midst of it all, it just kind of seems like you're in, you're in battle. You know? <laughs> but yeah. uh, looking back on it, it seems like a, like a really great experience. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that you, <laughs> you had such an awesome ride. Um, yeah, I, I second that. I think it was a great time out in LA. Like Sam said, we moved out, um, myself after I, I graduated from Syracuse where Raf, you and I know each other from and, uh, oh, yeah. go, orange. go orange. and, uh, and yeah, Sam and I 
packed up, moved out to LA about 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, two of us just went on the most wild ride in uh, the entertainment industry, you know, went out there with a dream of making films and uh, telling stories and, you know, connecting on a deeper level uh, emotionally, you know, with, with viewers and, uh, you know, just kind of learning more about ourselves. And uh, yeah, you know, what happened was not exactly as we planned, but, uh, but learned a lot in the process. So I started in production on the Warner Brothers and Fox Lots. Um, and then from there went into the agency route as well and just kind of, you know, took my licks there and uh, came out on the other side working for a production company, um, Thunder Road, where uh, we produced a couple of the John Wick films and Sicario. And uh, yeah, just kind of got into it's kind of indie filmmaking, but on a large scale mm-hmm. um, and just really seeing the 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 minutia that goes into making these, you know, massive films um, and just making budgets of any size work. Um, And that just sort of informed how we would move into new angel ourselves, taking what we had and still thinking big um, and trying to keep that scale while, uh, you know, doing it on a, on a shoestring budget. And um, I think that's been a, an awesome creative project, just trying to, make the most out of what you have um, for, for sure. And actually in maybe how it relates to uh, your podcast here, what's been exciting for Armand and I is just uh, we have these experiences working on these bigger budgets, these big productions uh, and uh, in different capacities. And so we see these big budgets from studios to kind of smaller indies. We see these um, in helping shepherd someone else's vision and support someone else's vision. And meanwhile, we're making these smaller movies as Mm -hmm. we kind of come up as storytellers ourselves and we're applying everything we've learned about how Hollywood makes movies and how smaller uh, companies make movies to our own outfit and to our own growth as filmmakers and storytellers. And it's been this amazing parallel track where we haven't just been in a vacuum making our own stuff. We've been kind of thrown into a bunch of different rooms and a bunch of different experiences in Hollywood. And now we've figured out how to kind of apply that to our own outfit and, and how we tell stories and how we make them because the making of them is actually like where it gets complicated. Like anyone can have an, an idea, but like the making of it is actually, and that's why like when you watch movies, you see like it takes a, it. It's a miracle that anything ever gets made, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's cool that you guys, I feel like people don't really do like the creative partner thing anymore, you know? You have, it's only like siblings. You get like the like the Safty brothers, the Cohen brothers, but then you also have uh, Phil and Lord, or is it Phil Lord and Miller, or, Lord and Miller, Lord and Miller, yeah. Lord and Miller, yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like other than that, like there, you don't see a lot of like like creative partner like directing duos. So I think it's cool that you guys like are keeping that spirit alive. Uh, I don't know if if there are any plans to to like go off and you know you'll each like director create your own things but you know i think you guys mentioned it one thing that you guys did create together um which i saw and adored and i've talked to both of you guys about it at length is is your short film ashore which like you said had a a, a great festival run like you guys won like a, a bunch of awards and stuff um is it available for people to watch anywhere online like we can link it in the episode description um yeah absolutely yeah, would love to hear anybody's thoughts and comments on it. It's really a film that we made that is hoping to open discussion and have people's interpretation uh, come in and, and inform their own experience. So 
yeah, if you want to view it, please do. And we would love to hear your thoughts. Where, where can they watch it? Sorry, it's on our site, newangelproductions.com. It's also, I think, on YouTube as well. And sweet. We, we have a pretty good trailer as well. If you just want the two minute uh, <laughs> rundown, we're pretty proud of that. Um, but yeah, awesome trailer, awesome movie. Um, I think people should check it out. And I think if you're listening to this and you're listening to, to these two guys and you know you watch that movie and then hear what they're going to say about Pan's Labyrinth, like again, like it's just going to, you'll understand that like these are guys who like who know their shit. Like these are dudes who they've, Proven that they can make a movie, they can talk about movies. So prepare to be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you got like this might be you guys might be the most uh, the I don't know the most well equipped people that I've that I've had on the show. No, no disrespect to any of you know my other guests, but uh, but this is a big one. Well, talking, you know, talking to you and listening to how you approach your show, you have such a, a knowledge and such a love and a passion for cinema that's very apparent and the you know, the episodes that we've listened to in the past. So being on your show is, it's a treat for us yeah. because you're truly somebody who loves cinema and, uh, and we just, we, we're happy to be here. Yeah. Big time. Should, should we jump into the movie then? I feel like, I feel like now is as good a time as any. Yeah. Uh, so a question that I like to typically start our conversations with when we're actually getting into the movie, is just like overall background of, you know, your relationship with the movie. And I know when we were like, you know, going back and forth on what movie to have you guys on for, uh, there were a few different movies that were in discussion. And Sam, you mentioned that Pan's Labyrinth is like one of your favorite movies. So I think I want to start with you. Like, what is your, like, do you remember like the first time you saw this movie and just sort of like, what's been your relationship to it since that first time viewing it? Totally. Yeah. Um, I remember when you sent that text, I jumped at Pan's Labyrinth. I've consistently said that Pan's Labyrinth is in my top five, 10 favorite movies of all time. Uh, I don't remember the, the first exactly when I saw it, but I was probably 13 or 14. It was pretty recently after it had come out. And I remember being, first of all, terrified by it because it's it's a deeply scary movie. Uh, the prosthetics, the animatronics, everything about it. It's And even rewatching it again, as, as I did uh, before this podcast, I was reminded of how actually frightening the movie is, uh, both the the fairy tale component, the underworld and the real world fascist uh, storyline. But I remember first experiencing it and thinking, um, holy crap, like the parallel storylines that are happening right here. Like you're having this really, this real world, world war, uh, post-Spanish civil war experience. That's just this horrific, violent fascist regime. And your pair, and, th and then it's all about how this person, this girl, Ophelia is, making meaning of it in her own internal world. And personally, I I had like a really wild imagination growing up and I mm -hmm. like was really sensitive and I was was really I'd I'd be overly aware of the world and I'd be overwhelmed by the world and I'd feel like anxious all the time. And I would often go into my own imaginary world and I would kind of like I'd find it to be a safer way of relating to the world and making sense of it. And I remember thinking, holy crap, there here's this film that is actually making making a real world out of this person's imagination, like her imaginary refuge, how she's coping with the horrific traumatic circumstance that she's been dealt with her surrogate father and like the, the situation post-war. It was amazing to see how this girl that who's probably was probably my age when I saw the movie mm -hmm. is actually making sense using her creative imagination to um, cope with 
the world. And I had never seen a film do that because, and, and the way it was doing it, it was almost like a fable and it made, it made the realities of war feel like something a 13 year old could actually like process and make meaning of for themselves, which I like somehow really connected with it. And also just the magical surrealism of it. Yeah. I could talk a lot about it, uh, but I'm sure we'll get into it. But yeah, that's, that was how I connected with it first. Damn. Yeah. That's deep as hell. <laughs> Army, how do you follow that up? Well, I think I think I was introduced to the film a, a bit later. I actually first saw Pan's Labyrinth at Syracuse when I was a film major there. Um, and so I was approaching it from a little bit more of a, you know, closer to the real world, perhaps, and sort of, you know, sort of flirting with the, the idea of venturing out on your own and being sort of um, just like this, this fledgling in, in a world that's way larger and scarier than, than the one you're used to. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that really drew me to the film, and I'd heard about it for years, but it, it sort of eluded me, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think one of the things that drew me to it was sort of it's, it's, its connection with um, fear and and sort of del Toro's fascination with horror and the the interplay between horror and fairy tale, um, and it's just fascinating to to see somebody build a world and have it be so close to absolute you know terror, um, but also sort of teetering on the edge of fantasy and and beauty and all of the you know the thrill and the excitement and the adventure of like a young hero going out on their journey. So. I love that play. I love the way that he sort of tiptoes that line. And, um, and I think that is, it, it creates for like the most real um, emotional experience with the character where you're not sure whether to be scared or excited. Um, I think any film that has that ability to sort of, you know, flirt with both sides um, creates like a really dynamic experience yeah. while you're watching it. And I was just fascinated buy it from from the get-go um so yeah beautiful beautiful film damn and man. also also just that fairy tales can be dangerous like like yeah. that it's such an adult movie like there's so mm-hmm. much real violence in it like the violence in the real world and then the scariness of the underworld mm-hmm. that is it, it was it was a it's a it's a really adult movie that kind of has this feeling of it being a fairy tale but the actual content itself like you're saying it's, it's all the fear in it is like it's deeply unsettling to watch and i and i kind of can't believe i saw it so young because i don't I, I think it's r-rated i'm pretty it sure it must be yeah there's a lot of violence totally but it's a coming of age story which is mm-hmm. which is wild that and the main character has got to be 12 or even maybe younger um yeah yeah but it's it's truly scary a scary movie it's terrifying yeah. and the real monsters were the the nice the people dressed in nice clothes, yeah. not the not the scary looking monsters. We we love a movie where we can say the humans were the real monsters all along. Mm-hmm. We love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love that. S- Sam, you brought up something that I feel like I wanted. I want us to dive a little bit deeper into. Um, it might totally derail the episode, but I feel like it, it'll be a fun place for us to explore. So you're talking about like how you watch this, and you were a kid that was like really deep in your imagination and you know we all kind of like use that to sort of escape from the horrors of the real world similar to what ophelia does and i was thinking like that like that quality has to be something that like most filmmakers have where you're just like creating these stories and these worlds in your head and it's like a way to like process like real life emotions in 
because you like can't just like face them head on and be like, oh, my stepfather is a fascist who like kills guys who hunt rabbits. And you like don't know how to like actually process those emotions. So you create a world where there are, you know, giant toads and and pale men and and fawns and whatnot. Um, so like did did you ever sort of like read it as being an exercise in like understanding like the process of storytelling? Like, is that something that you connected to? Was that something that you picked up on at 13 or was that like subsequent viewings? Honestly, I, I, I don't know what I was picking up on when I watched it. I knew that I was deeply moved and terrified of it, but in rewatching it and I'd seen it a few times since then, I think what you just said is exactly right. Like it is about the power of the imagination and storytelling and the human ability to weave reality, which is uncertain and makes no sense and is terrifying into something that makes some sort of sense for our young minds and even our adult minds. Um, and, uh, it, it, yeah, it really, and, and, and I, th I think a lot of creative people, not just filmmakers probably re re resort to their, they're generally sensitive people. And so they tend to resort to a world that they might understand more or know better in their art or in their imagination when the real world is either too traumatic or too boring or too like, or not inspiring or interesting. Um, like, and so I think Del Toro's like, and with all of his films too, it's like it, it, he's he. I would imagine he had an experience experienced the world as a chaotic, overwhelming place, and he would take refuge in these stories, like a lot of filmmakers tend to do. Um, I don't know that I was thinking about it when I was uh, that young, though. Rewatching it recently, I did totally pick up on the sense because because the the storyline happening in in fascist Spain is completely parallel to what's happening in the underworld. It's just there are different little tweaks here and there. And the monsters downstairs, it's almost like her mind had to conjure up really the scariest images you could possibly conjure in order to make sense of the most horrific, scary things that are happening at the top. It's, it, it's, it's so interesting that the fantasy she's creating is not one of fairy tales and beauty. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's actually there's real terror and fear in these monsters down there because it wouldn't she couldn't it's her way of processing terror i mean like so yeah. so the imagination isn't a refuge that's all good it's like a scary mirror you know yeah, yeah. it's like a funhouse mirror kind of. Where, did army did you pick up on on any of this you know this this sort of like theme of like how creative people how filmmakers how storytellers sort of like process real world emotions and like did you see any of that like do you see like some of yourself in, in Ophelia and like how she's able to uh, like create these, these fairy tales. And I guess I'll ask another question. I'm just going to pile them on. Uh, but Sam was mentioning that, that the, that the two stories like really parallel each other. And I've always thought of this movie as just being like, like using fantasy as escapism from the real world, but it really is more just like, she's really just mirroring it in her in her stories and like do you think that the movie would have been any different if uh or do you think it would have like played as well if it were just you know the real world is super scary so i'm creating this like lovely land where like all is well and i don't have to worry about shit or do you think it only works if like the fantasy world is as scary as the real world i know i just threw a lot of questions at you no, I, I think those are those are fascinating questions <laughs> for sure i mean it's like 
what you just mentioned about how del toro kind of crafted that world and made it either beautiful or destructive or you know exciting and interesting or scary and mysterious like that is that is a total question that a filmmaker has to ask themselves like how much do we want this fantasy world to mirror reality um i don't think that the film could have I don't think that the hero's journey is as successful when the path of escapism is so easy where it's, you know, so Alice in Wonderland, for example, right? That's like a huge influence in this film, right? The whole reason that Alice goes down the hole, you know, the rabbit hole is because she's enticed by it. Like there's this mystery to it, but there's also sort of like this fantastical element. And as soon as she, goes into the rabbit hole she she discovers that this world is entirely sort of topsy-turvy and upside down and mysterious and there are strange characters that are you know kind of beautiful and and you know intriguing but at the same time you don't know if you could trust them right i think that that in itself is the mature and sort of adult way of experiencing what ophelia was was going through you know there was no naivete with Ophelia. She was totally aware of the dangers that she was, you know, encountering when she was going down her own rabbit hole. And she decided to push through anyway. In the hero's journey, it's always the question and then the hero's decision to answer the call. And so there always has to be that that doubt or that fear at the beginning of the hero's journey. Um for the for the hero to decide to embark that's what makes a hero is the is when they decide to move forward despite any fear or uncertainty yeah so so i think that it was absolutely you know necessary for del toro to create this sort of dark underbelly to this fantasy world um and and i think it it was incredibly effective i also wanted to point out in terms of like the hero's journey and the structure of the hero's journey, something that we can talk about now or return to later, but talk about it. Okay. So the entire story is told from the perspective of Ophelia, right? And it's very much in her subjective. We're experiencing the under the underworld. We're experiencing like her fantasy with her. We're experiencing real life with her, but the story begins and ends with a like a prelude and a and a prologue that are outside of her own existence as a human um and Mm. we don't know in that case we don't know if it's actually her telling her own story the entire way through you know it 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 speaks about a soul and a person a, a young princess who begins her journey by going up into the real world and then it concludes after ophelia's death right so the whole story and it's dude should we can we speak no, no, about the ending like fine. that yeah yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be funny if someone was listening to this and i like, haven't seen it yeah yeah okay so i guess i guess what i'll say is that without maybe we could cut that no 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 seriously um we're gonna assume that anyone who's listening to this has is familiar with with pants okay cool also it's it's been like 15 years (laughs) i feel like you don't need a spoiler alert on anything 
more than like five it's years a five-year five-year grace yeah. period yeah. yeah um yeah so just that just the idea that there is a narration to begin and to end the film brings into question whether we're actually experiencing it through ophelia's perspective at all which i think is is also really interesting maybe that allows the opportunity to speak in a bit more of a realistic um way because it's outside of this young girl's yeah direct experience that's really interesting i've never i've never read it that way i think like most people probably read this movie as you know it's it's subjective from ophelia's point of view but those like sort of bookends that you're mentioning it does kind of like reframe it where it they certainly read it that it is all objective and we're just like watching it as it actually plays out without any sort of like not interference but um what's what's the phrase from from literature uh like not unfaithful um Mm. unreliable narrator Right, right. Unfaithful right. narrating. <laughs> narrating multiple multiple movies. Yeah. <laughs> Ophelia, you're cheating on me with another movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. I'm actually, I'm curious about that because uh, you mentioning that because I realized that like I had seen this movie so long ago, but you, you, and you had seen it more kind of recently. And I was, I was really curious to hear how it hit you watching it this time because we've, like developed our voice to kind of together and like i was really curious to hear how how it hit you and like what 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 you were thinking about and the the narrator thing is is super interesting i the i i one of the lines in it is um from when when ophelia is in the underworld and she's talking to um fawn i think the the yeah. the, the monster like the kind of king the king guy get down there um and he says you must remain intact and not become immortal like a mortal and i'm wondering about because the the movie begins and ends right with ophelia's not alive in in either case and it seems like i i don't i don't actually know what to make of the narrator thing i hadn't i hadn't thought about it it's really interesting because it's like the fairy every fairy tale like has a narrator and and i guess i i think about it I, I, i'm curious to hear what you think about it actually my only thought of that i wanted to say was for me, the sense of Ophelia being a real person and like being an alive person, like there's a there's a, almost a sense in this movie that if you're alive, if you're a mortal, a mortal person, that's the that's that's the thing you want to avoid because that means you're a- alive in the land of scary adults and in in death and war, and the whole reason the underworld wants to keep her immortal, it's almost like being a kid forever. It's that's kind of like what I feel mm. like is what's going on down there is like is like. We can't let you grow up because grow, grow, growing up is scary. But the idea of that being about mortality, like the mortality of it and like the death stuff, it throws into question of like, who the fuck is narrating it? You know what I mean? Like, like I don't actually know what I had. I had not thought about the the perspective of like, who's telling the story because it does start with a parable. I think it's like the whole, you kind of hear the whole story. And then after Ophelia's death, you get the prologue. Who's telling that? That's like that's like probably just like Del Toro, but like yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I I totally am thrown by the narration as well, <laughs> and and I think that's I do think that that's Del Toro's way of saying I'm not going to tell you whether what you're about to see is real or not. You know, I 
I'm not I'm not going to give you the answer on, you know, what of Ophelia's experience was happening in real life and what was happening mm-hmm. in her mind. Because the whole parable that it starts with about the princess that goes into the real world and she experiences the the wind and the sun, but at the same time she experiences death and, and her own death ultimately, that's you know, that's a parallel to what we're watching. So the fact that we're it's almost like a double the, the parable is told and then you watch what is supposed to be the reincarnation of princess Moana in the real mm-hmm. world, but also paralleling that original story. It's like, are we watching the parable unfold or are we watching, you know, a secondary storyline that is just paralleling the original? That's interesting. Right. Right. So it's like, which, what, Dude, you're getting deep what into it. See, are we watching? Yeah. Whose fantasy are we watching? <laughs> I wonder if the parable, because it really, I mean, you're talking about that and you think like allegory of the cave, like, I mean, you're talking about just the hero's journey, like, and even like fucking like Siddhartha, like, it's all like you go into the real world, you experience the elements and you grow from it, but you have to lose your innocence in the process. The idea of uh, the, whether it's a, just a, separate parable or whether it's like a a prelude to basically telling us the whole story in the beginning like the beginning t- does tell the whole story that you're about to see but i think the the whole process of the movie unfold every sub, every scene you know unfolds in a way where the world gets less and less safe it feels like like the violence of captain vidal i think the, the the way they show it, like in the first 20 minutes, the way they show the stabbing of the guy in the fucking face. Oh, yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. The way they, he stabs that and they show that and the yeah. cutting of the, you know, of the, of the cheek. And the, I almost think it's like there's a safety of the parable in the beginning when you have a distance from mm-hmm. the story and you're kind of like, oh, it's a fairy tale. Like the, we've heard this story before. But then when you experience it subjectively, because we are, like you said, we're watching the whole story unfold through Ophelia's eyes, really. So it's almost like we can't just know the story. We have to live it ourselves and as Ophelia has to and experience the pain and the terror of it. So it's like, it, I think it is, the, the film itself, I think is just a telling of the parable that, the, that, that is posed in the beginning. But you're brought on the journey and it, it feels way more intense and scary and not necessarily like what you thought it was because it's almost like you're just being brought on for the ride of it now. Yeah. Damn. Fascinating too how what you're talking about, how you know, your point about Ophelia being brought into the real world. I think the story begins with Ophelia completely in a fantasy world, right? Like she's the the story begins yeah. with her reading her fantasy yeah. book in a car with her mother before anything. Yeah. I think it opened the first image is the same as like the last image. It's her laying there with but it's in reverse and like the blood is like going back into her nose. And then it op- like the story opens with her like reading these stories. So it's like, is she is one of the stories that she's reading? Is it also the story of her? Like what? what? <laughs> I listener, I told you guys, these, these dudes are, are serious. They're about their business. <laughs> They're bringing on un- unseen levels of heat to, to this podcast right now. <laughs> I think I'm like my heart is racing thinking about this. But like you're you're so right, Raph. Like the the first shot is Ophelia's final moments in mm-hmm. reverse. 
yeah. and then we're brought to the the beginning of the story and we watch the story through its entirety so which which fairy tale are we watching are we watch you know yeah. are we who is you know who's the princess I, you know who's who's the princess yeah. what what's happening whose version of the story are are we actually watching is is this a version of of a fairy tale that like Ophelia herself has read like all of these questions are 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 absolutely insane um and i just don't i don't know if we have the time <laughs> to unpack all of them. yeah <laughs> so i do want to come back to something that sam said which i thought was super interesting um the idea that when you become a grown-up that's when you like lose your innocence or become a mortal and i i don't know that that really stuck with me that like really resonated with me when when you said that and i'm trying to think of like the other characters in the story and like who is mortal and who is not and i think we can all agree that ophelia is the best character in this movie but probably the second best characters uh Mercedes. have to hit it with the uh the list yeah the the Spanish yeah. accent, yeah, the Mercedes. list, Mercedes. Yeah. Mercedes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she, in a way, is like fighting with her own loss of innocence and like just like the whole like resistance army. They are, in a way, immortal the same way that Ophelia is. And, you know, they're not going to the lengths of like creating fantasy worlds, but they are trying to like create a world in their own sort of like in their own vision that is not the world of like the horrors of fascism. So I guess this is a really roundabout way of asking the question of like, do you think that, do you think that Mercedes is like Mercedes is also on this like journey of trying to keep her, her innocence or her immortality um, in a, in a way. That's, that's really cool. That's a really cool <laughs> proposition. Yeah. I, I, Cause I do think Mercedes, 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 <laughs> You're gonna have to figure that out. <laughs> um, is is the closest parallel in the real world to Ophelia in the underworld in terms of her mm-hmm. plight of trying to protect the prisoners or protect the, the folks who are trying to envision this better world? And she ultimately has this choice to make. Like she she she, their her stakes are real. Like the stakes for her are like if if Vidal finds out that she's helping them and helping them survive. That's that's a death sentence for her, and right. So she has this almost like obligation. It ultimately, it's her, her. I think her innocence is already fucked. But but mm-hmm. the beautiful thing about that is that her innocence is fucked. But she still gets to make a choice to help innocence as an idea, or innocence meaning the morale, the moral yeah. good. So it's like, how do you once you know innocence is lost, be a force for good in the world? which is what these soldiers are fighting for and what Ophelia hopes for in some way, but has no actual power because she's a kid. Mm-hmm. Merced, Mercedes yeah. is, is the, uh, God, this is going to kill me. We can just, we can just go to Mercedes. Mercedes. <laughs> yeah. Mercedes is actually has the ability in the world. She's almost like a role model for Ophelia yeah. as a, as a beacon of light in this dark world. She, in her own way, I don't know if it's so much recapturing innocence, but like, it's the adult version of that almost. It's like this, like yeah. he's lost innocence herself. Ophelia is going through the process of losing it herself as we're watching that unfold. Mer- Mercedes has already gone through that. And now, but she gets to be a force for good in, in a dark world. And that's, a yeah. she also kind of gets to do that because she has like actual agency in the world, which Ophelia has, she has no agency whatsoever. And that's like part of why she creates the fantasy world. Um, 
Army, I want to kick it over to you, but I, I don't know how to frame this as a question. That's really all that I have can is I, that Mercedes has has agency, but pick it. Can pick I it just up. add something quickly onto Mer- the, Mer- the element of Mercedes? Um, yeah. I think it's fascinating how they created the Mercedes character because she is basically sort of dueling with Ophelia's actual mother for the the mother role in the film Mm -hmm. so it's just an interesting choice that del toro introduced this other sort of maternal figure to ophelia while the mother is still in the picture is is this sort of like a representation of ophelia older is it supposed to be her adopted mother i think one of the one of a brilliant tactic that del toro made to sort of endear this woman to ophelia immediately is when ophelia and her mother arrived at the estate and immediately mm-hmm. the mother she steps out of the car and she gets put into a wheelchair so her agency is entirely like revoked mm. you know? yeah yeah she her, yeah. her strength and any ability for her to literally stand for herself is taken away and she becomes this vessel of what the future of this sort of ideology that videl is creating is oh, right so now there's like this vacuum that's created where there needs to be a, an older woman who exists in the real world yeah. that ophelia can look to to like draw power from because her mother is actually losing it like by the moment literally so can i just riff on that and so please so, and literally the baby is killing her mom her actual mom right uh the virus of, I mean, this is like without getting too like allegorical, but like Mercedes is almost the one is who, who has the perspective isn't a blood. There's no bloodline connected there. So it's almost like Vidal is a virus. Fascism and violence is a virus. It's killing the mother with the baby. Cause that's Vidal's baby. And it's literally like, she's going to die. And he's like, yeah. he's like, I, if, if, if it comes between her and him, keep the son, let her die. Yeah. But that son is going to kill the mother. I mean, it's a virus. I mean, it's literally like it's going to, and so Mercedes is the only one with actual, and she fights to keep that agency. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And keep like a pureness, Mm. right. That, that the mother doesn't have because she's infected by, by that virus of, should we talk about fascism for a little bit? I love talking about fascism. We knew it was going to come up. We knew it was going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, Let's do it. Uh, I feel like Guillermo was very much so in his, not, not just in this movie. I was thinking about it, uh, have like rewatching this after seeing like shape of water, uh, and some of his, and like knowing about like his new Pinocchio movie, like Guillermo is like very, very anti fascism, which is pretty rad. Yeah. I feel like we can all agree. Yeah, on no that. fascists yeah. here right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> Team Del Toro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Del Toro versus fascist yeah. feud. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Did did you guys like know anything about the Spanish Civil War before this movie or like or since? Because I my knowledge of it is very limited to Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> What I think is really great about Mercedes is yeah, that- yeah, yeah. So you're asking about Ophelia's uh, plight to uh, adulthood, right? Okay, um, I could, I could dive yeah, in. Sure. I could dive in. Okay, so the 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 Spanish Civil War, yeah, was not in my realm of you know consciousness at all before watching this film, and it was only in doing like follow up research to understand what the hell historically was actually happening did i yeah. did i know kind of where you know we were coming into the story um and i don't think this is intentional 
However, I do think that by showing this film to an American audience with sort of a, a historical happening that is kind of outside of our sort of everyday curriculum in school, it, it really does make the symbolism behind good and evil that it brings it more to the fore because it's, you know, it's not something that we're applying context to. It's more so something that it's like, okay, this is clearly bad. We know mm-hmm. what this type of symbology is, what this iconography is, right? And so we approach it from that fairy tale, from that fairy tale sort of perspective, yeah. because we're we're being taken on this ride where we know that there are good, there is good and bad, and we just have to hope that good prevails. So that's that's my way of saying I had no fucking idea, um, <laughs> but I but I do I do think it's it's fascinating to see how kind of the the ideas of that time were permeating through you know mm-hmm. Europe and yeah all over yeah it almost feels like it's like what you're saying about uh because it, in shape of water and in pinocchio and in in pan's labyrinth it's like he needs del toro needs the villain like because he's telling these fairy tale stories right and and i've mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting now that everyone agrees that fascism is one is probably the most evil ideology right and Gore, uh, uh, captain vidal is is probably like the most evil person you could conjure i mean he's he's a he's he, there's no redeeming quality about him like he has he's no. there's no like oh e- i mean even if you could tr- try to get into his psychology like and, and i think and in pinocchio he has similar characters too and in yeah. shape of water so it's almost like yeah it's it's fascism as this idea that's it, it's almost like uh all right everyone in we just need evil in this film for good to prevail like you said yeah, yeah. It's like Nazis in uh in like the Indiana Jones yeah. movies. It's just like they pop up and you're like, I okay, can, like I, I I know I know what we're doing here. I get who is who's yeah. bad and who we have the to defeat. That these folks are playing in this movie. I get it. Yeah. I want to throw something to the group right now to see what people think about this. The last line between the doctor and Captain Vidal before Vidal shoots him oh. is something along the lines of I'm paraphrasing, but it's you know the doctor basically euthanizes the the rebel who was captured Mm -hmm. and the doc and captain Vidal comes in and he says, you directly disobeyed me. Why would you do that? It was, you know, it was good to have you here and you were part of my team. Why would you do that? This is already after the captain knows that the doctor has been slipping medicine to the rebel forces. Mm -hmm. Um, so he knew basically that he was caught and he was, you know, he was, uh, he was made, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so the doctor, upon leaving the barn, says to Captain Vidal, um, "To do without asking questions is, you know, is the wrong is the wrong doing." So, yeah, it's like something like only people like you believe in obeying without obeying without thinking right. or something, something along those lines. Right? But yeah. It's a super powerful yeah, line. Only, it's a shame that we can't yeah, remember. Only people, <laughs> only people like you do without asking questions. So I yeah. feel like that is that sort of maybe the root of the evil is to obey without questioning. If you bring that back to Ophelia, Ophelia is very mm-hmm. like inquisitive and and curious, but always sort of. Um, it's a movie about has, choice, about right? Choice, right? Because Ophelia doesn't yeah. always obey even what she what might be the right thing like when right. she's at the pale man's table 
and she and the 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 the, the, the what's the, the like the dragonfly or whatever is the guy the fairy, the, the fairy guy right yeah. is is telling yeah. her don't eat the grape but she does anyway mm-hmm. right because she has to learn for herself how to make choices and then mm-hmm. she learns and then then she'll grow up to be someone like mercedes who 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 has experienced mm. the consequences of actions and now knows yeah. what choice to make and vidal was never inquisitive yeah that's really fucking no. cool oh my god wow yeah dude she has to learn that that choices have consequences they can either be good or you can lose your fairy friends mm. because you ate some grapes yeah yeah were they, were they your friends to begin with is the real yeah. question right. of course no we, we love the yeah, fairies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. all right so we brought up the pale man and i feel like we're we're failing to talk about like what is probably what this movie is most famous for like we've gotten into all the deep emotional aspects of it which i'm sure some people are interested in but really everyone's here for the monsters like let's talk about the monsters the the design of the pale man is maybe one of the most iconic movie monsters of all time like what, what do you guys have on on that and just all the monsters all the all the crazy like creature design. that was the thing that stuck out the most on the this rewatch because i haven't seen it in probably five or six years and since all of our work that we've done together and and, and being on some sets it, it it is a master master class of costuming of prosthetics of special effects makeup i mean like these i believe it's a lot of men in suits uh, like i think there's actual people and they they build off of it mm-hmm. with kind of puppetry puppetry and, and yeah. some additives and some um but the pale all of them are incredible but the pale the detail on that guy's skin and the the heart and the, the way his skin folds on on itself and his belly it's just yeah. so disturbingly detailed and like and, and it's completely real it doesn't look at all vfx it looks completely real it's uh what's the guy's name he always works with with guillermo doug jones doug jones i think he also did the pup puppeteering for the fawn as well yeah he's the fawn which i was wondering doug jones is a white guy from like illinois did he learn to speak spanish to play the fawn or is that someone else i i like, believe I think it's someone else yeah that yeah. it's a voiceover i think okay. um i'm pretty sure yeah yeah but i mean <laughs> shout like, out doug jones really put the film on his back yeah he's, he's him he's yeah the guy. He's, he's them He's all of yeah, them. He's <laughs> them. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, that is, it is such an, so the, the monster that everybody always goes to is the fawn, right? Like that is sort of the film's main icon. Iconic, yeah. yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think the, I think the, okay, I guess what I want to say is like, the the film's the film's main icon is the fawn and just that it's it's very interesting that the fawn jumps back and forth between being this sort of beautiful kind of sidekick to Ophelia and also this mm-hmm. very sort of threatening evil you know ominous yeah. type of character to Ophelia as well um i just i i love that that element to it i i don't think i really have a comment on it in general yeah, no no i yeah i love that it's like it's very unclear it's it's uh he sort of exists in a gray area that a lot of other characters in this movie don't you know he's like 
uh, when Ophelia first tells Mercedes that she has been hanging out with a fawn at night, she's like, my mom always told me not to trust fawns. And you're like, but he's been pretty chill. He's like, you know, he's showing her the ways to like become Princess Moana again. You know, he seems like a nice guy. But then Mercedes, because she's a character who we trust, when she drops that line, that then recontextualizes like how we view the fawn. And then there are some actions that he takes over like the rest of the movie that like you said, we like jump back and forth and we're like, is this, is this guy cool? Is he chill? Is he, is he bad vibes? Is he good vibes? And then when he's asking to Ophelia at the end to, to kill her, well, not kill her brother, but to, uh, you know, use some of his blood for, for sacrifice or whatever. Um, at that point you're like, yeah, this fawn sucks. <laughs> but then he gives us one last switch up at the end. Right. Where he comes back yeah. and he says, you've completed all three tasks and welcome yeah. back your highness. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I have to say that Del Toro is not super explicit with the way that he symbolizes the monsters as, as parallel to real mm-hmm. life. And that's something in the film that I was like toiling with a lot. I was trying to figure out wh- who Who's is who? what. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Something interesting. Yeah. Can I can yeah. I jump in on this? I, I didn't I totally did not pick this up. Uh I wish I had who actually wrote this so I could give them credit. But something that I read was saying that the the toad story is very much so the sick mom, where like the toad is is taking from the beautiful tree and they pointed out that the tree itself looks like the whole like like vulva sort of like diagram that you get with like ovaries at the top and stuff. And like this frog is the baby inside. That's like taking life from the beautiful tree. And I was like, that's, and that's like so obvious to me now that this person has pointed it out, but watching the movie, like I did not pick up on that at all. So I'm sure that there are, you know, if you hit R slash movie details, (laughs) there are people who have, who have given us like all of the explanation for like what the pale man represents and like what the dinner represents, what the grapes are. And, and all that stuff the, the the iconography and the i mean you could you could analyze you can analyze it like literarily as if it was a book with so much like you could look at the religious iconography you can look at it as a coming of age story you can look at it at like the fall from grace i mean like there's so yeah. many different ways to cross analyze it but like um but but it's interesting what you're saying uh about the that the monsters don't map specifically onto any one character, but that it, it's kind of an amazing choice, right? Like it's a beautiful choice that it's not because I think that's what we're trying to do that as the viewer, yeah. we're trying to make meaning of this and try to draw the parallels, but it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be a real challenge for Ophelia if she knew that there were direct pair like that. It was, and that's why it's so interesting that the fawn is so confusing, right? It's because yeah. she doesn't have a clear role model slash mentor slash guide in the underworld because mm. she's so conflicted and confused and she needs to learn who to trust ultimately, you know, in this yeah. world. And like, and there are clear black and white characters on the, on the top, but she's figuring it all out for herself. It's confusing. And it's, it's, it's fascinating that I, I never heard the frog uh, as uh, as uh, the mom that that's really yeah. interesting. Though. That makes a lot of sense. I think that tracks. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. There, there, there must, there might be something on the pale man, but also he's just terrifying. I read about the pale man. Um, I think there was like a past interview with Del Toro, and the pale man 
as I understand it, is a criticism on on the Catholic Church and how <laughs> the pale man decides to go after the children as opposed to eat the tremendous feast before him. Oh. Uh, it's almost like it's almost like you know having all of the power and having all of the you know the goods and the riches of the world presented in front of you and to still kind of prey on the innocence of you know the youth or Damn. you know um, you know the innocent that's heavy. yeah uh that's heavy yeah because you when when they're showing like the images like the paintings of him like murking children it kind of reads like like paintings in a church like the the like the glass you know uh the, the glass panes or whatever yeah like it sort of like reads like that uh but just with the most despicable images that you could imagine yeah also i, I just i have to mention it because it every time i rewatch this movie it pops into my head but the resemblance between the pale man and mitch mcconnell is like absolutely <laughs> we need to if there was a visual we, a visual well, side by side yeah, right now. like they look it's the it's the it's the triple chin the sad yeah. <laughs> totally and you yeah. know that if the pale man talked he'd probably talk like he would mitch mcconnell. Say, yeah and i it, it might be an unsafe assumption but i assume mitch mcconnell also enjoys eating and killing children absolutely Good point yep yeah i would yeah. go past him that's a wild thing for me to say on the record <laughs> i think actually and when he froze so. it was because he saw a child there and and he, was, he was like i gotta get that yeah that yeah, yeah he put his hands up over his eyes that's fascinating probably runs like the pale man too yeah <laughs> Why? That, that, Bow -legged. That, that that chase scene totally like when i first saw the movie that chase scene of because he's not bolting because you're wondering like is he gonna run fast like is he gonna be really fast you yeah. know what i mean or right. he's just lump limber he's so weak because he's yeah. not eating and then and, and i remember that was even more fucking terrifying to me that he, he was is. just kind of moving like lanky and like it was just so realistic it was like God, that's a real monster. Because it the, the monsters are all like real, realistic, moving, and they almost have they have human qualities the way they move and the way they look. Like they have, they're they're it's it's all these prosthetics and all these. It's all built upon like a human form for the most part. The fawn, the pale man, like they're not these crazy animalistic. They're like human form, but like heavily decorated and move like humans, but like are deceptively. Uh, they, they don't look like humans yeah mm. it's interesting when you were talking before about like ophelia's like loss of innocence as she dives into this you know as she becomes closer to the the war that she's sort of like becoming a main character within um it's really interesting because the way that they depict her story in the beginning of the film is sort of separate from the the like infantry and the the all of the you know the gunshots that are happening in the woods i mean there are people who are just getting like assassinated out in the woods and it mm. cuts back to ophelia and she's not even hearing the gunshots at first and then slowly mm. you know her world begins to merge with the the world of the captains where the war is kind of like encroaching yeah. on her world and she's she's hearing explosions while she's indoors and it's all kind of like bearing down on her and i think that as she's you know encountering these monsters it's almost the idea that like knowing that monsters are real like how do you walk through the world after that yeah you know yeah yeah yeah, maybe Mercedes had a bad experience with uh, with a fawn, and 
you know, that's, that's colored her the way that she moves through the world. Um, right. That's really interesting that it's like, it's, it's not until she encounters those, those fantasy monsters that she's able to like see the monsters in, in the real world. Guys, this is, we're, I didn't. I was not prepared to get this deep into Pan's Labyrinth. I thought we were just gonna be like, cool set design, like Mercedes is great, and the Pale Man, and then like all the time. You guys are just like, nope, we're diving all the way in. You gotta um, figure this thing out. You gotta figure it out. <laughs> yeah. It's also just side note, beautiful movie, like just beautiful, lovely looking. Like it was shot. I think it must have been shot on film because it's so even the like the forest shots and just like the image is so crit. Like it was just such a beautiful. Beautifully shot movie, nineteen million dollar budget. Nineteen, isn't that boxed, insane? Boxed eighty four million. Yeah. So like, yeah. it's an insanely inexpensive film for what it looked like, and it just it did really well. For it's itself. also like top five grossing international movie in the U.S. Mm. Like this movie resonates with American audiences in ways that international foreign language movies like typically like don't penetrate like american culture the way that this one does like you ask most american film fans like if they've seen or enjoy pan's labyrinth and like 80 to 90 percent of them are going to be like yeah that movie kicks ass mm. which is not something that you can say of a lot of like international films mm. in, in the u.s which is which is dope and, and, and that 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 19 million dollar budget like you see where he spent the like you see where he spent the money like he he made the choices to Put put it towards set deck mm-hmm. and makeup, and, and and to really make everything feel real. Like mm-hmm. like that's where he put all the money because there there are these scenes that are like these are like this could so easily have been an eighty million dollar movie, but like he put every every cent on that. You see it in the in the details. I I totally agree. I I could not believe the budget when I yeah. saw it. Um, when you think about it, it's kind of a contained film. You know, there are like these three or four like set pieces that are like really big, like the tree and the, you know, the, the portal into the underworld. But other than that, it's, it takes place at a house and in the woods. And it really is the product of somebody's incredible imagination. How big can one's world become when all they have in their surroundings is just the house that they're in? When somebody's so contained and so trapped, how big can they make their world feel? So that's sort of like the containment of the film is actually what drives it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's grandness, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, this little girl is thinking really big because she's so trapped yeah. because she's so Damn. isolated. Yeah. I know we're, I, it just got me thinking about what you were saying about choice too. Cause I think the best movies leave you feeling with a sense of feeling alive and also mm-hmm. have agency in your life. Like people mm-hmm. talk about walking out of a movie with like main character energy or whatever. Yeah. I really think what that is, is a sense of possibility and like, Oh, I have agency in my life in the way yeah. that, in the way that this movie is literally about like, yeah, there's a, there's a moment where, uh, one of the, um, I forget actually who he is in the movie, but this older, the older guy, he's got gangrene on his leg. It's mm-hmm. really- He's a rebel. He's yeah. a captured rebel. Yeah. And uh, he's about to get his leg amputated. And the doctor, who is clearly just having these moral conundrums all day with the position he's been put yeah. in, um, he's about to amputate his leg. And just before he does, the old man says, wait just a minute. And you're wondering what he's going to do. Like, is he going to like kiss his wife or is he going to like whatever, say a prayer? Yeah. But he just looks at his leg for an extra couple seconds 
And then he's like, okay, I'm ready. And and it's almost like the and the doctor registered that what he was doing was like, here goes another piece of humanity. Like this is like like we are now like the the costs of this war is so insane. Mm-hmm. Like we're like losing our limbs literally and like losing our sense of ourselves. And there's just this moment of it was it was like such a, a moment of such pathos that like he decided to like have that pause where nothing happened in that moment. He was just like, mm-hmm. before I lose more of myself, can we just enjoy having a leg for yeah. another second? Let's just appreciate yeah. this leg just for two one more second. seconds. Yeah. 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 It was such a powerful moment. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Del Toro doesn't pull any punches with the film. No. You, you're you're just praying for innocence the whole time, and he just it's, he takes it from you. He's like yeah. he's like no this life this world is gonna fucking challenge you. Yeah, yeah. dude, that uh, that scene with the leg, the edit away from the amputation is insane oh because God. he holds yeah. it he holds it for like a bit like a beat too long, so you just see the initial cut. Yeah. So it's like not enough to be like oh, okay, like I watched him get his leg cut off and it wasn't that bad, but also it cut away right before. The nastiness it's the the fact that he holds on to it for just like a split yeah, second yeah. before cutting away is just absolutely insane and i think he cuts to ophelia like closing it's a match cut like he yeah. literally cuts it to ophelia like closing something or yeah yeah insane del toro is a madman yeah he is a world builder super cool i love him yeah yeah, yeah. he yeah. seems like just such a sweet like i just want to give him a hug <laughs> yeah i just want to give him a hug and have him like and he like you can tell that he's someone who who loves movies, which is just we need more of that. Like that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. Is like there's so much negativity and like toxic, you know, rhetoric and energy around movies, and like we need people who serve as reminders of like why we all love movies because they're awesome. And like Guillermo del Toro is someone who's just like, yeah, movies are super rad, and like everyone should go see them. And like he just like loves like you know praising other people's movies and and then he goes out and he makes insanely amazing movies of his own yeah you know pan's labyrinth is an all-timer masterpiece masterpiece such a good film another thing to call out about pan's is uh and you guys might know this already but uh alfonso caron producer producer yeah and uh alejandro and Enrico, yeah. assistant editor no way yeah Dude, the three of them are like best friends. Yeah. Amazing. It's adorable. I, I didn't know that Inuritu was the assistant editor on Yeah, it. just the boys just yeah. going out making films. Like they just, <laughs> they created a production company called Cha 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 Films. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. You know? there, there was like a run in like the like 20 teens where the three of them won like best picture back to back to back. Yeah, it was like Gravity, Revenant, uh, Shape of Shape Water. Water. Yeah. yeah. And like also and like Chivo, all one best director, or yeah. Lubetsky like shot all of them or something. Yeah. Not sure yeah. water, but uh, but yeah. He also he won like best cinematographer like five years in a row. I know, like I know. It, they're just a crew of like amazing Mexican filmmakers who are like some of the best filmmakers in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also a, also an amazing amazing um, example of how individuals who were not you know these aren't they're not spanish they're not from spain but they're telling stories about you know another another uh, group of people in another world you know in a, in a far off land and how they could really sort of like empathize with these individuals who are experiencing something entirely different um and just sort of 
like transcending their culture, moving into another culture at yeah. a different time and a different place, and and doing it with a lot of a uh, lot of grace. Yeah, you know? there's a lot of grace in this movie. Um, but again, I think that's just like Del Toro. Like, I don't think that you're ever going to get a movie from him that that doesn't feature um, that. You know, he's not going to approach from from a place of just a shit ton of grace. Um, absolute absolute banger. I feel like we've covered a lot, maybe not everything, but close to everything. I was thinking that we can maybe, you know, try to wrap things up a little bit and, and get into our recommendations. But I, I don't know. I'm curious if you guys have, have any, you know, final words or notes that, that you had on the, on the movie that, uh, that you want to mention before, we, before we wrap up, I got in my Mitch McConnell line, which was, that, that was all I needed. Now I'm only going to watch shape of, I'm only going to watch Pan's Labyrinth and think of Mitch McConnell, <laughs> which is, uh, I, I guess pretty on brand. Well, are there any story elements that we want to quickly hit? I mean, like, is there anything else that we haven't discussed? I think we've covered like most of the movie. We, we, we've covered pretty much the entire plot. I think we've covered, you know, a lot of the, the technical sort of aspects, the characters. I think we've, we definitely got into the deeper themes of the movie. Can, um, can we, can, can I ask two more questions? Please. One of which is, and we, they could be fast. We go around maybe. It's like lightning round, lightning round. One. Oh, first question is, is, is Ophelia's world real? What do you mean? Was, real? was she, <laughs> was she actually experiencing this or was it in her mind? Was it happening? The monsters, the monsters. I feel like it was her imagination, uh, but she experienced it as real. Uh, you know, maybe like some form of, yeah, just wild imagination conjuring it up. But I think she probably experienced it as real in the form of like intense visual imagination and memory. I've been going back and forth on it and I wanted to like give the like douchey answer of it doesn't matter because like all of the emotions experienced are real. But I think in that final scene when she's running through the maze and she gets to that corner and she's stuck and the maze opens up and she runs through and then uh, the captain runs up and it's closed. He then like loops back around to get to the center of the maze and she's there and like he doesn't see her talking to the fawn, but like she is there. So like that maze opened up and allowed her to run through. So I think because of that for me it's like it reinforces that it is real and like maybe he doesn't see the fawn because he's just a bastard and he has like no imagination he's only able to unless like someone gives him orders or directive to see the fawn like he's not going to see it because he's incapable of like making actual choices um so yeah i think because of that i, I think it's real um and it like but i i don't know the either either reading is um i think either reading works and like it doesn't really matter that much what do you think i think i think they're both fair i i would say that because of because of the the attempts to discredit the the fantasy world throughout the film you know with the mother saying you you know you live too much in your fairy tales and you know um just everybody everybody telling her that that she needs to you know get her mind out of like out of this out of her imagination 
I think that that is like we are directly supposed to question all of those, um, you know, those movements to discredit the fantasy world. And uh, I would like to think that she was experiencing all of these things. Another piece of, an, another piece of, of uh, information is when she puts the root under her mother's, you know, bed and her mother mm-hmm. begins to, you know, uh, get better. Um, yeah. And then once the root is burned, her mother dies. But uh, I do think that she's experiencing it. And I think like, I think del toro is asking us to believe despite all of the people telling us not to yeah so yeah that's beautiful glad you asked that question (laughs) to give us that answer and did you want to do why is it essential i think we've kind of covered why it's essential but if you guys want to give like a closing argument for you know if someone is like why is pan's labyrinth like a movie that i must watch i would say i mean it's a you can't watch this movie and walk out feeling nothing. Like, I feel like you can't, it's impossible to walk out of this movie and not have an altered perspective on mm-hmm. yourself and the world. It, it's so visceral and so emotional. Like it, it, it will get to you. It's like you said, he doesn't pull any punches. Like no matter what you feel about it, I, I, I personally can't imagine anyone not liking this movie. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I could see people thinking it's overwhelming or, too scary or maybe some of the characters in the real world are a little, a little too black and white because they need to be for the story to work um but why it's essential I, I would say it's about movies i think it's about mm-hmm. movie making and about yeah. the power of story and cinema and the viewer relationship and because you're you're, a, you're i mean you're watching the movie through ophelia's eyes but also as a person experiencing a, a story and there's the added i mean there's so many layers to it with the parable the and that's that it starts with but why i love it so much personally and why i would say it's essential is because the story itself if you read it as a book mm-hmm. it would be brilliant and beautiful and amazing and even in the beginning you hear the whole story as a fairy tale but it also has to work as a movie right and because because everything we're talking about here is so iconic and it's like, Oh wow. And that represents this and all the symbolism. Yeah. And, the sim- and, and it's like symbolism porn, this movie, because there's so much in it. It feels like maps onto the hero's journey so well. And all these biblical allegories and good versus evil thematically, it's like filled with it. Right. Yeah. But as a movie, it's engaging the whole time. It's like so uh, mesmerizing to watch. Mm-hmm. And I think El Toro was like aware because it's such an allegory. Like everything is so thematically rich but it works as a movie that's entertaining if you just want to have an entertaining movie, which I yeah. think is like, it's the same way like that the Beatles, like all their songs are awesome just for, yeah. I mean, I don't know if the Beatles are cool anymore, but like I, I they're like <laughs> the Beatles, all of their songs. In this podcast, the Beatles are still cool. Go. All the Beatles songs work as pop hits that anyone could love, but then there yeah. are people who also dig into the meaning of them and get lost in the beauty of their richness and like yeah. all the levels to it pan's labyrinth works on every level as a as an adventure movie as a as a sci as kind of like a sci-fi almost with like not sci-fi but fantasy um yeah and uh but then it works on all these deeper adult kind of like thematic levels so like it it, it, it just works on every level yeah i love that yeah definitely i i would just jump off of that and say i think it's really important right now to make films that challenge you know mm-hmm. i think there's a lot of content being created right now that uh um you know, I, I can't speak for all of the content that's that's coming out, but I do know that um, 
you know, we want to be satisfied and we want to feel those releases of, you know, serotonin, dopamine and all of those mm-hmm. things. And we want to leave feeling, you know, uh, satisfied or satiated yeah. um, when we, when we watch a film. Um, but sometimes the, the, the challenge of watching a film is sort of neglected. And I think Del Toro creates a fairy tale that still challenges its audience that doesn't, you know, spoon feed everything uh, to, to its viewers and, and makes them ask the question, like, what is real? What's not? What is scary? What's exciting? I mean, there's so many moments in the film where it could be a, a horrifying moment, but because of just the music choice or mm-hmm. the way that it's edited, it creates something totally intriguing if you're able to hold on for just a little bit longer. So in, in the way that the film is created, it actually inspires courage um, to look at things that might initially be scary in a way that is, you know, just inquisitive and, and sort of curious. And so everything about the film is asking its audience to question like mm-hmm. it's like its central character. And um, because of that, it's a very, you know, it's an it's an active film and it, it speaks to the audience directly based mm-hmm. on the example that it's putting forward. So, yeah, I do think it's essential. Um. Wow, I, you guys absolutely crushed it. I I feel like I feel like it wasn't an oversell on the front end. You crushed you're a great it. host. Yeah, you're, you're a great host. Awesome, Stop man. it. Yeah. You guys are are the best guests. Um, as are all of our other guests. But you guys absolutely crushed it. Um, well, we knew was, we knew we we knew we had a higher standard to come into. So yeah, we were this, uh, we were ready to rock. Hell yeah, we definitely rocked. Uh, like the Beatles. Um, <laughs> yeah, this was a ton of fun. I think we I think we covered it. Uh, I think we're ready for for recommendations. We know that Pan's Labyrinth is an essential movie. We've given you, listener, all the reasons why. Um, so now we're going to recommend some things to check out. If you like Pan's Labyrinth, uh, we'll quickly run through the rules for recommendations in case there are any new listeners out there uh, who aren't aware of, of what we like to do with this segment. So for each movie that we introduce into the canon, we will also recommend three things. One of those things has to be a movie. Uh, the other two things can be any and everything else. It could be uh, music, books, comic books, uh, a band, whatever, a restaurant. We like to get really weird. We like to get super creative. Um, we just ask that any movies that are being recommended are not movies that are uh, ones that are, are already in the canon um, or ones that we think will like most likely be in the canon. So like, don't recommend The Godfather. Uh, but other than that, I think we can jump in. Um, I feel like Army looks super excited. So for the order, we'll go Army, Sam, Raph, and and then we'll loop back around. So Army, whenever you're ready. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> um, okay, so for film, for my film recommendation, I would recommend Triangle of Sadness. Uh, it's a 2022 film. Um, so I'm a bit late on seeing it, but it's director Ruben Ostland. Uh, and he is, uh, he, he kind of came onto the scene with, with the square, which was like the festival darling initially. Um, but triangle of sadness is basically about a young couple who gets, who gets tickets on a, on a cruise ride with um the world's like upper echelon of society. And it's just like this incredible microcosm of like how, that 1% of the world is absolutely fucked and fucking everything <laughs> else up by their, their own perceptions of like what's, yeah. and it just like dives into this insane sort of like 
socio-political conversation that gets absolutely absurdist and it's um, just a really fun ride. And I think it also challenges the audience um, in, in a, in a really fun and sort of yeah. absolutely absurd way. Um, so definitely I really enjoyed that one. I would watch it. I would say a movie that I saw recently that I loved was past lives. Oh, uh, sweet. 24 movie, uh, Korean language, but shot in New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah, about a two childhood friends that kind of it's told over the course of like twenty years and checks in with them every eight years as their relationship develops. Uh, it's just a beautiful, tender like it holds back. It, it's have you seen it? Yeah, it's, it's great. It's so good. I mean, like it, it's just uh, it's so it's just one of those movies where every shot is just so intentional and like the dialogue. So it's some of the best dialogue I've ever mm-hmm. ever seen. Um, and it's just one of those movies that's it, it, it's only probably like an hour 40 minutes a short movie yeah. but it feels like kind of a slow burn but there are a couple moments in it that you just never forget because yeah. they're just build up to these little hugely potent moments between these yeah two yeah beautiful yeah, movie past lives. damn you guys are coming with some heat all right i'm gonna go with a really weird pick for my first one and it's like it's a really stupid pick but uh you know when she when she draws the door to to go to the pale man's dinner it's just like when they draw the door in Beetlejuice. That's the only connection between the two movies, but Let's go, you know, using chalk to draw a door to, to another world. And you know what? Like total Tim Burton vibes in Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. I was thinking Tim Burton and, and Guillermo del Toro, like kind of exist in the same like world of movie makers. Like they like create these, they bring to life these insane worlds that like are totally in their head. And you think like you watch like something like Pan's Labyrinth or you watch something like Beetlejuice or like Edward Scissorhands and you're like, this must be like based on something that like already existed because this is such a fully realized world that it can't just be from like one person's brain. Yeah. Like, they're they're that creative, like that imaginative, like it's absolutely insane. They speak to each other and I, I feel like yeah. there's – I couldn't imagine one – of those filmmakers, you know, Tim Burton is sort of like the godfather of that type of horror fantasy sort of worlds. But yeah. I can't imagine a Del Toro without Tim Burton. Del Toro sort of ties it back into yeah. a real world context. Um, yeah. He's like a darker Tim Burton. Definitely. Like Tim Burton without like the playfulness. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. What's your, what's your second pick? Um, I, I'm reading a, uh, well, does it have to relate to, the Pants? relationship can be as loose as possible. So mm. like we had our good friends, uh, Sean Ryan and, and Michael Romeo on. And I also didn't tell them that it's supposed to be connected. And Sean connected uh, pairing sour, sour candies with red wine to Indiana Jones because mm. <laughs> you take two things that aren't supposed to <laughs> to, to mix and they work really well like sour candy and red wine and uh you know a super hot um archaeologist who is also a professor that's good <laughs> okay um <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, you're, so you're reading robert shaw <laughs> robert shaw uh i'm reading i'm reading the shawl um, uh, oh the yeah, shawl, shawl. <laughs> shawl by david mammon <laughs> Robert uh, Charles David Bannon. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm uh <laughs> sorry, what is <laughs> Well I wanna do I, I don't wanna I don't know if I wanna do it anymore. 
You recommend it. Recommend it. Okay. 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 So, all right. So my, my, my book recommendation would be, uh, the shawl because it, uh, (laughs) my book recommendation would be the shawl by, uh, by David Mamet, and it's uh, it Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw. <laughs> His name was Robert <laughs> Shaw. I just, made, <laughs> I just made a guy up. All right, so I could connect this actually. Yeah. All right, so my book recommendation is The Shaw by David Mamet. It's a very quick play. Um, it's basically, you know, it's three characters basically in like this rapid fire um, dialogue heavy scene. It's about a. Um, kind of a con artist uh psychic medium who decides to uh con an old wealthy woman out of her money out of her inheritance um and i think it's beautiful because in the same way that pan's labyrinth sort of teeters on the edge of reality and 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 uh um fiction or um super naturality mm-hmm. um the shawl sort of introduces the question is there any type of paranormal like um realism to the, is the main character actually like summoning these spirits is is this experience real there's elements of like supernatural that sort of transcend into the film even the sorry there are, ele- there are supernatural elements that transcend into the story, even though we're very aware that they're trying to con um, this woman. And uh, it, it gets to the point where we don't even know if our main character knows whether his own shtick is just a ploy or if he's actually, you know, experiencing something supernatural. So Damn. the question is there. Is this yeah. actually happening? And uh, yeah, I love I love things that play with that ambiguity. Yeah, that's sweet. Kind of like Ashore. Yeah. Yeah, the Ashore Pan's Labyrinth thing. Is fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Book that I just finished that I really love uh, is written by Lulu Miller, uh, and it's called Why Fish Don't Exist, and it's her telling the real life story of a taxonomist named David Starr Jordan from I think like the late eighteen hundreds. I'm not sure exactly, uh, but. Uh, he committed his life to basically like naming all the fish in the world Damn. and not in the world, but just in his, uh, yeah. as many as he could. And, uh, he was just very interested in biology and, uh, it's the story of his life and his life's work in kind of understanding the real natural world and making sense of the world through these labels. Like he was mm-hmm. like kind of a Darwinian in the way that he was just like, yeah. everything has a label. Like he was really trying to like make sense of the world through these labels. And then a couple things happened. One, there was an earthquake that happened at his house and it like fucked up all of his like work and it just became dis- like, dis- it was destroyed and he was left with nothing. He, he had some personal tragedies happen as well. And then there's an amazing moment in it that is very feels kind of similar to Pan's Labyrinth in the way of um why it's called why fish don't exist. Oh, this might be a spoiler actually, but I'm going to say it anyway. Why it's called why fish don't exist is because there was a movement of people after Jordan's time and sort of concurrently that started to develop where people started to wonder. They started to study fish and find found that certain fish have more genetically in common to animals that are not fish. Like, so for instance, there's like a a species of halibut, say, that actually has more genetically in common with a cow than a swordfish. So it, when you, when you pull the thread of that, it really throws into question 
every label we have. And so it's called yeah. Why Fish Don't Exist is because there's a movement of people, a really real movement. There's a name for them. I, I'm forgetting it at the moment that believe that fish don't exist, that fish aren't real because it's a, it's a, just a name we give to these underwater creatures that actually might have more in common with other animals. So there might be more in common with a cow and a, and a species of halibut than, than, than yeah. two fish. And when you pull the thread of just the, the labels, there is no meaning at all. I mean, because if you say a fish is more similar to a cow, like our, our complete sense of the yeah, world yeah. is messed up. So it's really about uh, one person's journey into making sense of the world uh, and making meaning in a meaningless, chaotic world. Uh, and the terror that comes when your idea of what makes sense is shattered. Um, and so I guess like in the way that Ophelia is trying to create yeah. the world. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Great book. That was so there, long what I just said. But there's there's like there are fish about. truthers out there. There's truthers, yeah. They're called like that. That's that's wild. So for my second pick, I'm gonna go with um I'm gonna go with a, a, a movie directed by uh Guillermo's friend, uh Alfonso Curon. Is that how you pronounce his last Quaron, name? Quaron? Yeah. I never know how to pronounce it, so I just stay away from it. I call him Alfonso. Yeah. You Alfonso. guys are on first name basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another one of his movies. So in 2006, Inaratu, Quaron, and Guillermo del Toro all released absolute bangers. Um, Guillermo had Pan's Labyrinth, Inaratu had Babel, and Quaron uh, uh, had, um, I'm still messing up his name, had Children of Men. I'm not recommending Children of Men, but I am going to recommend Itu Mama Tambien. One of my which favorites. also dude an absolutely great movie i don't think it's in the canon it probably could be um but the actress who plays mercedes in pan's labyrinth is also the main character of uh of itu mama tambien uh the actress's name is mary bell verdu she's absolutely incredible in both movies and itu mama tambien is just like one of the most insane movies you'll ever see in like all of the best ways possible it absolutely Br- brilliant brilliant piece of filmmaking best road trip movie of all time i think mm. oh easily yeah. yeah easily it's yeah it's a it's an absolute banger of a film so good um, and, and also shot by emmanuel lubeski yeah so a beautiful his movie. first movies that he shot I, th- uh, I think that was 2002 one of his yeah. first movies he later went on to shoot birdman yeah. children of men gravity yeah, but that was one of, it. and it's not like any like it's such a grounded movie that it doesn't look like any of the other. But it's movies. it's still beautiful. Yeah. yeah, that was a big influence for Ashore. Was oh really? Concepting uh, was yeah. When concepting Ashore, we were definitely looking to Itu Mama Tambien because the relationship between the, just yeah. the dynamic, you know, and the the complexity, yeah. of the dynamic between all of them is just yeah. incredible, incredible writing. I can see that. Yeah. That's sweet. What's your, Dude, what's your killer favorite? killer wreck? Yeah, great, That's awesome. Um, like <laughs> like Um, okay, my last one is a bit obscure, but maybe people know it. Nice. Um, there's this Norwegian composer. His name is Daniel Herskedal, H E R S K E D A L, and he has the most beautiful, haunting, lovely instrumentals on Spotify. I mean, it's yeah. probably anywhere, but like. Yeah. Um, if you're really looking to get into some writing on a cold winter day or just take a walk in the park, yeah. throw that throw that on and get out there. Yeah. It's super inspiring. Uh, he has like he does a lot with like brass and like horns mm-hmm. and that type of thing. And it's sort of like this angelic 
um, like composition and really just beautiful. So it's, it's beautiful and haunting and sad and happy all at the same time, like Pan's Labyrinth. This guy. That's a good pick. I like that. I'm definitely going to check that dude out. That sounds sweet. That's sweet. Yeah. Sam, what do you... Uh, I, I would recommend... Um, I've been listening to a lot of like ambient music lately. Yeah. Just writing, like you said, the cold night kind of like uh, for inspiration. There's just two playlists I want to drop the names of because they're brilliant and they're they're not one artist but they're amazing compilations one is called ambient tape loops it's on spotify it was put together by robot koch who's this amazing uh composer Uh, Mm -hmm. he works with tape loops and he's got these brilliant compositions they're beautiful beautiful worlds to live in and to write in uh ambient tape loops and then um another one on spotify is called and i've been listening to it nonstop for the last like two weeks it's called main character but make it instrumental (laughs) <laughs> so it's i don't like listening to like vocals when i'm writing yeah. but like it has you know eric sati it has you know bach and every it has yeah. amazing instrumentals from movies but also from cla- the classical canon and uh any writers out there screenwriters that are looking yeah. for like kind of that bolt of inspiration when they're writing uh main character but make it instrumental will serve you well i, I love i love that yo and quick shout out robot koch Robot Koch, K-O-C-H, if anybody's looking to get into some dope, like, electronic slash, like, composition. Yeah, very, like, Brian Eno, kind of, but, like, but more modern. It's hard to describe. Atmospheric electronic. Okay. Experimental. Sweet. Yeah, world builder. A little bonus wreck. Yeah. I love that. Damn, you guys guys are bringing the heat everywhere. (laughs) Just all around recommend one last movie um a movie that i feel like i say this for like most of my recommendations but a movie that i feel like should be in the canon um but i just know it never will be um because i don't think enough people have seen it but i do think that it is essential viewing for for everyone to see this is a movie that i saw with our friend uh fernando he took me to see this movie uh this 80s russian anti-war movie about world war ii about this kid who joins a group of resistance fighters against, you know, Nazi forces that are invading Belarus and then trying to go on to uh, to Russia. One of the most outrageous movies you'll you'll ever see. Uh, but my third recommendation is Come and See. I don't know if either of you guys have seen this movie, but it is it's a must watch. It will like it, it kind of like Pan's Labyrinth. Like you walk away from that movie like a changed person. You're and you're like, oh, I do have the power to like make choices, but also like through the perspective of a of a kid. Like it's about fighting fascism. Like there are a lot of parallels. Come and see. Really, just exists in the real world. Um, there's no like fantasy element to it, but other otherwise, like a lot of parallels with with Pan's Labyrinth, but. Would highly recommend that both of you guys watch it and anyone listening also. If you haven't seen it, um, like buckle down because it's like super intense, but a really, really good movie. I've, heard, I've seen it on the list of like the greatest war movies of all time. I've also just heard yeah. it's like one of the most brutal viewing experiences in terms of just how accurate it depicts what, what war is like. Yeah. Yeah. We saw it on like a, like a Saturday afternoon wow. and – I just remember walking out of the theater on like a cold winter night and I was like, what do I do? Like, what is life? What is life? <laughs> when, when was the film made? Like, uh, like 85. Hmm. 
Yeah. So it's like weird. Like, I don't know what was going on in Russia at that time. If it's like any sort of like indication of like some sort of like larger movement or discussion that Russian people were having about the war, but it's like one of the best world war two movies or just like war movies ever. Hmm. I have a, I have a DVD if you guys want to borrow. I don't have a DVD player. <laughs> That's fair. It would just sit. It would be, it'd be art on my wall. You would just look, open up the DVD case and just look at it. Like, wow. This is supposed to be a great movie. <laughs> I can tell. That's awesome. Do we want to run through our picks one last time? Just boom, boom, boom. So people can, can jot them down if they didn't catch them the, the first time around. Yeah, we yeah. totally remember them. <laughs> we got that siren going on outside. New, okay. New York evening. Yeah, so my picks are uh, Triangle of Sadness, directed by Ruben Ostland, uh, The Shawl by David Mamet, and Any Work by Daniel Herskadal. Um, my recs are Past Lives, uh, the film, uh, the book Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller, uh, the two Spotify playlists, Ambient Tape Loops by artist Robot Koch, who I recommend in his own right to check out. Uh, and main character, but make it instrumental. Both Spotify playlists. I love the name of that playlist. That's so good. Uh, I've got three movies. One really random one, and two like <laughs> just like pieces of cinema. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Arguable. That's a that's a yeah. I don't know. That's a piece of cinema. Uh, yeah. So I've got Beetlejuice, E Tu Mama Tambien, and Come and See. Um, dudes. The, the new Angel Boys, Sam and Army. Thank you guys so much for for doing this. This was a ton of fun to do in person, uh, to actually like feel the energy in, in the room uh, while, while we got to talk about Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, this has been an absolute blast. Any any final words? Any anything that you guys want to plug for for folks? Like where can they where can they check out your guys' work? I think we gave the the website, but if you guys want to give it again. Yeah, we're at newangelproductions.com. We're, we're also on Instagram. Um, we're always kind of working on new stuff, writing a couple projects right now, and also just um, looking to work with uh, creative folks. Ultimately, we're, we're experimenting with some shorter form stuff, doing some kind of visual poetry kind of stuff and, and re- reconnecting to what we love about telling stories and creating moods and creating worlds. Um, so we're always making stuff uh, and we're at New Angel uh, Productions. And I just want to also say uh, thank you to for having us here and also for doing this podcast. This was super fun. And like having podcasts like this where we get to geek out about movies and what we love about them and storytelling. It's like, it's important. And this is like, this is a no joke podcast. So thanks for what you do. Thank you guys. Second that amazing to be here. Thank you so much. This was, this was an absolute blast. Um, yeah. Listeners check out, check out their work, check out new angel productions uh, while you're there. Watch ashore and you'll you'll see some of the connections between between that movie and uh and pan's labyrinth but i think we've i think we've covered it i think we've covered all of our bases um this has been an absolute blast we will be back next week with another episode our final episode of season two our final episode of 2023 um it's been a ton of fun doing this show uh the last you know year or so uh we have a lot of cool stuff planned in in 24 uh, but next week we'll be back. We're closing out the season with with Shawshank Redemption. So we'll uh, we'll catch you there. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay awesome, and we'll catch you in the wasteland. Mm-hmm.